All right, I trust everybody had a good day. If you couldn't have a good day skiing today, you need to find another sport. Uh, it was very nice out there. I got a little sun myself. Y'all may not have noticed. Uh, do want to thank Rick. Uh, talked about everybody else, but our, uh, our song leader for, I don't know how many years, a number of years, Rick Barton, and, and I can tell you, he, he puts a lot of time and effort in planning this, so I do want to give special thanks to Rick, and Jay, and, and Gary, and Kent, uh, they all, all do a good job, and, 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 uh, and now Mr. Weinberg is among our, you know, our choir and orchestra, so... Uh, also, I'd like to, to second the to thanks to Dave Powers. Um, I, uh, I am embarrassed to say, you know, Dave, when, after Dave became the sound man, I went a few years, I didn't even know who Dave Powers was. And the reason is, you don't seem, you know, but he puts in a lot of time getting up early and staying up late, getting all this stuff done. And so we show up and it all works, right? And so you don't, you know, you don't think about it. But Dave puts in a lot of work and usually I wait till the end, but I want to thank you now. So when y'all get a chance, shake his hand and say thanks for the job well done. And another big thank you uh, I need to give is to our to Jason Platt, who is with the church here. He's he's our what are you again? You're the building steward. steward. That's right. I keep forgetting. He he's he's a youth pastor here. But uh, I I can tell you I I came over yesterday just to see things, and there was a lot of construction going on, and this room did not look uh, <laughs> near this good, nor did the foyers. So Jason spent the day and even brought some other members of the church in to help him to get this place looking good for us tonight. So Jason, thank you very much. I do like to give my, my kind of my high ground uh, talk, uh, especially when we have we do have some first timers. Uh, when I'm in Dallas talking to people, I say, "Well, you know, what what is what is high ground? What does it do?" And it's it's kind of hard for me to explain because it's uh, it's pretty simple. It's a group of guys that get together once a year and we do two things: one, we lift up the name of Jesus Christ, and two, we build one another up. That's it. That's what we do. Uh, and in the building one another up, to me, what what separates high ground is we we do have a time of sharing uh each evening uh and we encourage that and we do um we do we do like to go deep and so uh y'all the first timers you'll be seeing that but we really do encourage men to open up and, and share whatever's on your heart whether it's a praise whether it's a prayer request some a struggle whatever we uh we like to encourage that and of course in involved in that uh, since we, we do encourage that, we also want to keep the integrity of high ground, and that is, we, of course, keep our confidentiality, uh, but also this is just a group of guys coming together. Uh, so we do ask that nobody try and use this as a uh, means of making a client list or a donor list or, you know, whatever the case may be. Uh, that's never been a problem, and we don't want to get into that. So, <clears throat> so if everybody would honor that, we would appreciate it. Um, all right, tonight we have um, a very special speaker, actually a new speaker, first time to high ground. Uh, it is uh, Dr. Steve Scheibner. Uh, Steve is an American Airlines pilot. He also has his doctorate in ministry, and his ministry, as I understand it, we just got a chance to talk for the first time tonight, 
his counsels uh, promotes a lot of parenting. So, is that right? You do a lot uh, with that and uh, parenting, which is is uh, uh, very important these days. He has a a very um, very powerful testimony. Uh, actually, Fritz Mowry met him, and Fritz called me and said, "We we got to get uh, got to get this guy to uh, to high ground." Uh, he does have a situation that we'll talk about later, but he uh, is here tonight. He was going to be for the entire time, but he does have to to leave about noon tomorrow. He's had a situation come up, but he is a good guy with a great testimony. He has eight children, so he does know a little bit about parenting. With that, we uh, he's asked that we start with a short video that he has. So, Dave, if you will start the video. And after that, Steve will come up. On an emotional level, at first, it didn't really sink in. And I think a lot of people that are close to an event like that, you know, you're kind of in a sort of a dream state for a little bit. You're kind of trying to figure out what happened. And, and uh, I finally started to piece it all together uh, later on that evening. And when he finally did get a hold of me, he, he just kept saying, it wasn't me. Don't worry, it wasn't me. Uh, well, I've been with American Airlines since 1991, so we're coming up on my 20th anniversary with American. Uh, I've been a pilot a little bit longer than that. I was first uh, employed by the Navy. I flew P3s uh, out of Brunswick, Maine, and uh, I was on active duty for eight years. I got about 3,500 hours of P3 uh, time in those eight years. Uh, and then I got hired by American Airlines. And uh, currently I fly the Boeing 757 and 767 airplanes. It's interesting because you don't know what's going to happen September 11th when you're living September 10th. And I just remember September 10th because S September in New England is beautiful. It's not quite fall, but it's, it's cooler than it would be other places. And I'd taken them to the library and I was sitting outside drinking a coffee while they were in the library. And for the first time really thanking the Lord because I felt safe. I thought, wow, we're all here and it's safe. And what in the world could ever happen in Georgetown, Maine? September 10th is a date that means you know a great deal to me because uh, I did what I normally do on uh, September 10th. The day before I become available to go flying and my flying is in blocks of days of availability. So I was available to go flying on September 11th. So at about three o'clock in the afternoon on September 10th, I sat down at the computer and I, I logged in like I normally do and to check to see if there was any unassigned flying for the next day. And sure enough, there was one trip that was available on September 11th. It was American Airlines uh, Flight 11 out of Boston's Logan Airport uh, to Los Angeles. It was a two-day trip, got back on the second day left, I think, at about, I don't know, 7.40, 7.45 in the morning, something around that time frame. Uh, and I looked at it, and there was no uh, pilot assigned to it yet. So the next thing that, I, that what I do is I go and check and see uh, if there's any reserve pilots available. Now, I know I'm available, but there might be some other guys available. And it just so happened on September 11th, 2001, uh, there was only one guy available to go flying on that day, and that was me. So I've been through this drill a lot of times over the years. Uh, I went and I, I, in fact, I told my wife, I said, um, I said, I'm going to Los Angeles tomorrow. Uh, I went out to the car and I opened up the trunk and I got my, my uh, dirty luggage out of the trunk and I threw it in the wash machine and I packed my bags with the new clean stuff and took it back out to the car and I said, I'm going to LA. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, in fact, in those days, uh, what's called crew scheduling at American Airlines would actually assign my name to that trip. Uh, 
I ironed his shirt, which I always do, and put his epaulets on his shoulder and found the ID and, you know, made sure he had everything packed he needed. And we just prepare. When you're a, um, when you're a military family, you prepare in a certain way. When you're an airline family, it's the same thing. There's just a routine and kind of a checklist you go through to prepare for dad to leave on a trip. The, the final assignment comes via the phone call. So they make you know, positive contact communication with you. It's not just in the computer. They'll call and they'll say, hey, we want to let you know you've been assigned a trip. Now, I, I might know that already by looking into the computer. I could already see that. But a real person will call you and say, Scheibner, it's now your trip. And now at that point, once you have that phone conversation, even if a line pilot wants to, they can't bump you off that trip. So they've only got a 30-minute window of opportunity. Once that phone call gets made, it's a done deal. I waited for the phone call, and the phone never rang, um, which is not completely unusual. It's not the norm, but it's not completely out of the question either. In fact, I didn't even think about it for a while. Uh, it was later on that evening, I thought, hey, you know, they never assigned that trip to me. And then I really didn't give it another thought because, well, what that means is I still get paid, but I've got, I've got tomorrow off. I'm still available to go flying, but, you know, they never finalized an assignment, so I guess I can, you know, brush off my ambitions to do something else that day. What was taking place, uh, unaware, I was unaware of, uh, was the fact that a, a fellow by the name of Tom McGinnis, uh, who was one of those line-holding pilots, a little bit senior to me, uh, Tom was celebrating his birthday on September 10th with his wife and his children. And Tom did what I did that afternoon, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He went over to the computer, and he logged in, and he looked, and he saw that that flight was open, but my name had been penciled in. And he knew he was in, still in that 30-minute window of opportunity. Uh, so Tom called down to American Airlines and said, hey, you know, I just want to check with you. Am I legal to take this trip? In other words, can I bump Scheibner off that trip? And uh, they did what they do with the computer down there, and they got back to him and said, yep, you're, you're legal for that trip, but you've got to give us a call back in the next, you know, 20 minutes, uh, or else we're going to finalize the assignment. I assume that Tom had some sort of conversation with his wife, uh, and he called back. He called American Airlines, and he said, yeah, I'll take that trip. So at that moment, they erased my name off the trip. They assigned it to Tom. I didn't know any different because they never called. And uh, Tom showed up for work that day on September 11th. As you recall, on the East Coast, it was a beautiful day that day. They pushed back off the gate on time, and uh, they took off on time, and they, uh, Tom was actually flying. It was his leg to Los Angeles that day. And uh, they flew up to about 23,000 feet, and Tom engaged the autopilot to take him the rest of the way to Los Angeles. And at that moment, uh, all hell broke loose on the airplane. I mean, there's not another way to, to express it. The cockpit's not answering. Somebody's stabbed in business class. And um, I think there's mates that we can't breathe. I, I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. Which flight are you on? Flight 12. Flight 12. Okay. No, we're on flight 11 right now. This is flight 11. It's flight 11. I'm sorry, Nitty. Boston to Los Angeles. Yes. And what seat are you in? Ma'am, are you there? Yes. What, what, what seat are you in? Ma'am, what seat are you in? We just left Boston. We're up in the air. I know. We're supposed to go to L.A., and the cockpit's not answering their phone. We're okay, but what seat point. are you sitting in? What's the number of your seat? Okay, I'm in my jump seat right now. Okay. At 3R. Okay, you're the flight attendant? 
Our number one has been stabbed, and our five has been stabbed. Can anybody get up to the cockpit? Can anybody get up to the cockpit? Okay, we can't even get into the cockpit. We don't know who's up there. Yes, we're still here. Okay. I'm staying on the line as well. Okay. What's going on, honey? Okay, the aircraft is erratic again. Bobbing very erratically. Betty, talk to me. Betty, are you there? Betty? have a TV on, I didn't have a radio on, we were just doing our schoolwork and, um, and pretty soon the, the head contractor called me. Um, his guys had called him because they realized that Steve wasn't home and he called me and said, you know, where is Steve today? And I said, well, he's in, at the Navy. He had gone to work for the Navy that day since he didn't get an airline trip. And it, the problem with the contractors was they were scared. They thought he had been on that flight and they were going to be dealing with this distraught woman who had just lost her husband. Um, it really started to come home to me, the emotional gravity of what happened when my cell phone started to ring. But uh, a secretary at an, a school that I used to attend uh, looked up my cell phone number and she was the first person to call. And uh, I answered the phone and uh, Evie was on the end of the phone and she heard my voice and she started crying. And uh, when she started crying, I, I started crying. And uh, so uh, she was just happy to hear my voice. And it wasn't two minutes after I got off with her that somebody else called, friends of ours from down in Texas. And I thought, you know, I, I need to get ahead of this and make some phone calls. So I, I called home and I, I called to different places. I still didn't realize that that was the flight that I was supposed to be on. You know, I'm watching it on TV like everybody else. And it didn't click with me. I knew the flight number and everything. It still didn't click with me. When it finally clicked with me was later on that evening. I thought, you know, I wonder who was on that flight. And I thought, well, maybe I can go find out the names because the media wasn't going to give you the names for a few days. I thought maybe there's a way through the login process at American to find out the names. And so I did. I did what I did the day before on September 10th. I logged in. And when the screen came up in front of me, it looked exactly like it did the day before when it had that trip and it had my name penciled in. Except this time, it had this trip sequence. My name wasn't there, and it said these three words, sequence failed continuity. That's code at the airlines for the trip never made it to its destination. Wow, what an understatement. <laughs> sequence failed continuity. And at that moment, when I got that visual look at the screen, I was overwhelmed. It, uh, I, I said, you know what? I packed my bags to go on that trip. And then I was even more curious who had bumped me. But uh, the words can't describe that moment of, of realizing that you should have been someplace. You asked me about guilt a little while ago. Yeah, you do have a twinge of guilt. 20 years ago, I wrote a life objective. And my life objective goes like this. It's to seek, trust, and glorify God through humble service and continual prayer 
to raise up qualified disciples as quickly as possible so that someday I might hear God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. The events of September 11th took that life objective that I already had and it intensified it for me. The fire just keeps getting hotter as I get older. But someday I want to stand in the Lord's presence and I want him to say, well done. I would hate to get in God's presence and have him say, oh yeah, Scheibner, I see your name's down here. Well, you know, have a seat. I need to hear the Lord say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what's on my plate, and that's what's driving me these days. Um, why does God take one and, and leave another? It's not because um, I'm a better person, or God wanted to do more with me than he wanted to with Tom. I, I think in God's providence, uh, that's obviously his choice. What has stuck with me all these years is the fact that he did leave me behind, is that I need to act like I'm living on borrowed time, because I am. I can look and see my smoke and hole, and it was on national TV. And I saw where I should have died, but I didn't. And now there's an obligation that comes with that. I've got to live my days with a sense of urgency. I have to make sure I get the most out of them, and not the most for me. That's, I think we, we live in a world where everybody's kind of out to get the most for them. This is not about me. This is about the distinct privilege I've been given to know that somebody died in my place. What I know is that somebody died in my place not once, but twice. That's where God comes into the whole thing for me. See, Tom sat in a seat that I was qualified to sit in. And by all rights, I, that was my seat that day. I should have been in that seat. In fact, I've sat in the very seat of that airplane that Tom was in. I've flown all of the, the 757s and 767s American Airlines own. So I know what it's like literally to sit in that seat. But I am still, all these years later, still qualified to sit in that seat. And I could have. But Tom didn't die for my sins. You see, God sent his own son to die for my sins. Jesus Christ was the other one who died in my place and he hung and he bled and he suffered on a cross to pay a price for me that I wasn't qualified to pay. I couldn't have hung on the cross. I didn't have the same qualifications. So one guy sat in a seat that I should have sat in, the other hung and bled on a cross. One is far more significant than the other. That's not to trivialize what happened to Tom. It's to elevate um, and glorify what God did for me and you know, for mankind on the cross. Uh, you guys look like you need to exhale or something. It's okay. That film is really incredible. It's, uh, I've, I've seen the film 400 times, and the, the, the sign of a really well-made film is that uh, you have the same reaction every time. And I still get shook up at that, that point where the filmmaker takes you up on the airplane and Betty, the flight attendant, is you know, talking to the folks on the ground and explaining what's going on. And Betty, Betty was a friend of mine. 
it's hard to hear the panic in her voice. You know, she was trying to be professional at the same time she was scared, didn't know what was happening. We have the luxury of knowing now, because of time, what was going to happen to her, but she didn't know at the time. And uh, there's all the confusion between her and the folks on the ground. They don't even know who they're talking to at first. And uh, back in the day, and this was about 15 years ago, they used to have the little telephones in the back seats of the airplane that you'd pull it out and run your credit card and you could make a phone call. And they've taken those out of the airplanes for a lot of different reasons. But at the 2001, they were still on the airplane. So Betty had snuck to the back. They had actually herded everybody to the back of the airplane, the terrorists, and she was back there hiding away trying to be discreet. She had reached around the corner and grabbed one of those phones and run her own personal credit card. And then she was talking to the folks on the ground. So they think they're talking to a passenger at first. Of course, they find out that it's her, and that's about a 20-minute conversation. It was cut down for the film. Uh, but the one portion in the film that we left in real time was that moment where the one lady on the ground says, uh, can anybody get up to the cockpit? Can anybody get up to the cockpit? And then there's just that pregnant pause, you know, when she says, we don't even know who's up there. And then there's that moment where it all sinks in, and everybody knows that this is really a grave incident. Uh, and so... At any rate, uh, I've traveled all around the world um, showing the film and doing what old Paul Harvey used to call uh, the rest of the story. And that's what I'm going to do this evening. I'm just going to tell you the rest of the story. Uh, before we jump into the rest of the story, I just want to give you a little bit more of my background. Uh, I'm, a lot of people ask me, are you still flying for American Airlines? And the answer is yes. Uh, I fly from New York now to Europe uh, primarily, but I'll do four or five trips to Europe a month. Um, I'm, pre I'm a president of the Character Health Corporation. It's a nonprofit corporation, and our aim is to uh, train parents or equip parents to train a new generation of courageous, Christ-like, character-healthy leaders. We really believe that the American family is in crisis, and so my wife and I travel around the country doing conferences and seminars both for parenting and marriage. We do a lot of stuff with schools where I'll come in and do the faculty, staff, and student body uh, at the same time. And I also have another side to what we do, which is corporate core values and ethics training. And uh, we've done a number of uh, large corporations. Uh, and so the, the, uh, there is no bottom to the ethical pit that we've dug for ourselves. And uh, the moral decay in our country, it, unfortunately, has kept me in business. Uh, and so uh, that's a lot of what I do. Uh, now, I want to show you just one thing, and that's the film you just saw. When I come, I always bring this film on DVD. Because as you guys are thinking about it right now, you're thinking about a friend or a neighbor or a coworker that you wish had just seen that film. And this is really a witnessing tool. That's, that's all this is. But it's a really a unique witnessing tool because it's not like handing somebody a track that they're going to you know, feel awkward with and stick in a drawer or throw away after you leave. Um, it's a 9-11 story about a pilot. And uh, you know what? They're going to stick this in the machine and watch it. Maybe you want to watch it with them. But the idea of this film is to hand it to somebody, pray about it, and then follow up in a few days and say, hey, what'd you think about that pilot guy's story? You know, the amazing thing about 9-11 is it's the, the defining moment of our, our times. It's, it's still, after a dozen years, still resonates in the hearts and minds of people. So again, I've got stacks and stacks of these over there, and I want to ask you guys to grab um, these and, and take some and hand them out when you get home. Uh, I, I usually charge for these, but if you're going to hand one to your pastor... Uh, then you, you take as many as you like, all right? Uh, and uh, the other, uh, and we're not allowed to, to do our business thing here, but uh, I'm speaking at a conference uh, in the end of June, the last weekend in June, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday in the Dallas area, and I, there's a lot of guys from Dallas. I'm looking for a church to preach in on that Sunday, so if you guys can help me out with that, I'd love to hear 
uh, talk to you afterwards. The other thing is the book and my wife, that beautiful blonde that you saw. I am the most fortunate man in this room, all right, uh, because that gal's married to me, and uh, she's a talented writer. And so we got so many requests over the years to tell the rest of the story that she just sat down and told my story from her perspective. And it's really just a great perspective. But there was that moment in the film where the, we talked about the phone not ringing and uh, what an unusual situation that was. And she picks up from that moment in the book, and here's what she writes. She calls it the sleep of the unaware. And she says, the no phone call wasn't completely unheard of for our family. In Steve's time at American Airlines, there had been about three times that we prepared for him to leave and the, the phone never rang. Sometimes we wishfully joked, perhaps you'll get bumped from your trip and be able to hang out with us today, but usually that just didn't happen. For us, no phone call meant more time with Dad, and he'd still get paid. Not a bad deal. So that evening, back into the closet went the airline uniform, and instead we prepared Steve's Navy uniform. The unexpected day off from the airlines provided an opportunity to spend time working on the Navy base. Again, I ironed another uniform and made sure his insignia were in place. Now with a plan in place for Tuesday the 11th, we tucked the kids in bed and headed upstairs ourselves. I always kind of chuckle at that line, because how many of us had a plan in place for Tuesday, September 11th, 2001? And that plan got interrupted that day, didn't it? I mean, the whole world came to a stop that day. 45 minutes away, Muhammad Atta spent the evening in a rented hotel room. No family dinner for him. Instead, he went to the local pizza hut and then returned to his room, eager to perform his prescribed rituals in anticipation of the next day's events. While we slept in Georgetown, Maine, Muhammad Atta stayed awake, fueling his hatred and evil plans in Portland, Maine. In a hotel that we passed on each trip to the big city of Portland, Steve's would-be assassin made his final preparations, and yet we slept peacefully. I can only speculate about what was going on in the McGinnis household that evening. Their lives looked so much like ours on paper, military background, airline pilot, active in their church. I picture them going through the same pre-trip rituals that Steve and I performed. I'm sure Tom was in bed early. He'd have to be at Logan early on Tuesday morning to pre-flight the airplane for Flight 11 to Los Angeles. Like us, they would sleep the sleep of the unaware, unaware that Monday night would be their final family night together, unaware that Tom's 42nd birthday would be his last, unaware that life as they knew it was about to change forever. And it goes on from there. September 11, 2001 is is what I call a major life event. It's one of those moments where your brain takes a little snapshot of exactly where you were. And as I'm describing that to you right now, even though it's been almost 13 years now, can't you picture in your mind's eye exactly where you were on 9-11, right? And you can picture that first television screen you were looking at, and sometimes the feelings, the, the, the emotions even come rushing back. You know, at first you looked at it and you thought, that's not really happening. That's a very normal response. You have that, that moment of denial because it's just too incredible for you to take in at the moment. But a few seconds later, it sunk in that that was actually happening in real time. This past September 11th, I was in New York. I spoke at two churches in downtown Manhattan, the first time I've been to New York to tell my story. And I said to them, I said, you didn't look at the TV. You looked out the window. And you saw the smoke in the air and you thought, this is really happening in real time. You know, I believe the Lord puts that little snapshot mechanism, that little camera inside of us for a reason. And the reason is this. From time to time in our lives, we need to stop and focus on that which is most important and exclude that which is least important. Am I right about that? There's times in our lives, men, where we need to stop and focus on that which is most important. And by the way, that's what you guys are doing here. You're spending three days focusing on that which is most important. The least important stuff will be waiting for you when you get back. 
It's not going to go away. But there's times it's important for us. Church on Sunday is that for me. You know, when I get to a church where I'm not telling my you know, little story, at my own home church, I love it because that's a time where I can focus on what's most important and exclude the stuff which is least important. So over the, the last now dozen years, I get asked three questions primarily, or two questions actually. The two questions I've been asked the most are these. You know, how do you like flying airplanes? And how has your life changed since the events of 9-11? And the one question is a whole lot easier to answer than the other. I love flying airplanes. Most guys that, that fly commercially for a living will tell you they love what they do for a living. I can't believe I get paid to stare out the window, but I do. It's a pretty good job. Um, but I got to be honest with you. Uh, it gets a little boring at times. You know, and you can picture that. There I am, you know, up at altitude, and I'm staring at the instruments, and they're staring back at me, and the, the, the conversation with the captain has just sort of died down, and, you know, there we are. And, and uh, some funny things happen at boring moments in life. I don't know about you, but at the most boring times in my life is when something hilarious usually happens to me by mistake. And to, to kind of illustrate my, my point about the boredom, uh, this is about seven or eight years ago now, I guess. I was uh, coming back from Los Angeles to Boston. That was my normal route in those days. And we're at about 37,000 feet. And uh, I guess we're somewhere over Kansas. I'm looking out the window of the airplane. It's just as flat as can be down below. And it's just covered with crop circles, right? So I start counting the crop circles. Bad idea, right? When you're tired, it's like counting sheep. You know, next thing your head's going to hit the dashboard. So I'm counting all these crop circles while I'm staring out the window. And all of a sudden, a thought occurred to me that I hadn't thought about in decades. And it was funny. And it caught me off guard. And I started laughing. I started laughing so hard, I started losing it. You ever have that happen to you? Right? You're in a crowd of people, and they all got their arms folded like, dude, what's your problem? And you know, I, I'm trying to get my act together. And every 30 seconds or so, I'd start to calm down. And it's just me and the captain. The captain goes, Steve, what in the world is so funny? And I'd try to get it out, and another wave of laughter would just crash over me. And so this goes on for an eternity. When you're having a belly laugh, like three minutes is a really long time. So at the end of three minutes, I'm foaming at the mouth. And uh, so he finally, one more time, I calm down. He says, Steve, what in the world is so funny? And I said, all right, are you ready? Mrs. McWilliams. And he looks at me like you're looking at me right now, like, what in the world? I said, all right, let me explain Mrs. McWilliams. I said, Mrs. McWilliams was my fourth grade teacher, and she was not a nice lady. In fact, this gal was mean and rotten to the core. All right. Now, I know that some of you may be teachers. You may be married to teachers. You may have a teaching background. I, myself, am a teacher. I think what you do for a living is fantastic. But perhaps like one out of every 100,000 teachers ought to look for something else to do for a living. All right, that was Mrs. McWilliams. She had these three rulers that she had taped together, and she used that thing like an assault weapon in the classroom. You never saw this lady coming. All right, she was stealth. Her shoes didn't squeak or nothing. If your fingers were over the edge of the desk, that was one of her pet peeves. She'd troll around in the back of the classroom, you know, and she'd sneak up behind you, and she'd take that club of hers and whack, she'd neck your knuckles, and man, that would hurt when she would do that. So I want you guys to come into the classroom with me, all right? You're an eight-year-old boy. It's just outside Detroit, Michigan. It's early November, and the first snow of the season is just starting to gently fall outside, all right? Where do you guys want to be right now? Yeah, trapped with Mrs. McWilliams or outside? Now, the first I realized that this gal was somewhere in my vicinity was when the pain radiated from the side of my leg up to my brain. She had snuck up on me. She'd taken that big old switch of hers and she'd whacked me in the side of the leg for all she was worth. And then she leaned over and she hissed this in my ear. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, Stevie Scheibner, you'll never make a living staring out the window. <laughs> all right? Yeah. So vindication came for an eight-year-old boy. 40 years later at 37,000 feet somewhere over Kansas. 
All right, we needed to laugh a little bit. But that's an absolute true story. And you know what? There's a little bit more to flying a commercial airliner than just staring out the window, but it, it does occupy a great deal of my time. And by the way, there are more Mrs. McWilliams stories. And so uh, I don't mind throwing that lady under the bus at all. So you, you come up and see me afterwards, and uh, I'd love to tell you some more stories, all right? The, here's an addendum, all right, to the Mrs. McWilliams story. Because every place I travel, I, I tell that joke. And uh, I'm down in Tampa last summer, and uh, I get done, and, and I'm signing books over here, and this guy comes up to me, and his name's Jim. He's about my age, and he says, hey, Steve, he said, I had a fourth grade teacher, and her name was McWilliams, and she was nasty. And I said, wow, what a small world. And he said, it wasn't Detroit, Michigan. He said, it was Lincoln Park, Michigan. Ah, I just jumped up, and I said, well, I only tell people Detroit because nobody knows where Lincoln Park is. I said, we had the same teacher. We're hugging each other, male bonding, right? I said, there's all these 50-something dysfunctional males out there on the planet that had Mrs. McWilliams. You know, it's great. So now what about that other question? You know, how has your life changed since the events of 9-11? And uh, that's a harder question to answer. Uh, you know, all of our lives have been impacted by 9-11, and uh, we've given up a lot of our security and ex- your liberties in exchange for security, and that's another conversation for another day. But um, life has changed. We think of the world differently than we did uh, a dozen years ago or more. And, uh, but you don't just wake up one morning and have an answer to that question. It's a process. I think part of my telling the story is part of that process. But over the, the course of the years, the Lord kept bringing me back to the same place in the Scriptures. He kept bringing me back to John chapter 21. All right, so I don't know if you guys have your Bibles with you or you got them on electronics. If you do, John 21 is where I'm going to read. If you don't, that's fine. I'm going to read it to you here in just a minute. But John 21 is significant because as I began to think about what a major life event 9-11 was, I thought, you know what, it's not the only major life event we've had in this country. My very first childhood memory was when John F. Kennedy was shot. Uh, I remember where I was when Ronald Reagan was shot. I remember where I was when the Space Shuttle Challenger blew up. Many of you have those exact same memories. You can picture in your mind's eye exactly where you were. And so as I began to think about it, I thought, well, there's been other major life events. What's so significant about 9-11? And then it occurred to me that all of those major life events I just described to you, all of them pale in comparison to the greatest major life event of all time. And right now I'm speaking of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reason that you guys are gathered in this room and you're putting out three or four days of your life to come to this thing. And the main reason is because of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We serve a risen Savior, and that's the key. Not some dead guy in a grave. We serve a risen Savior. And with that major life event in mind, I thought, what if we asked the disciples the question, how has your life changed? right after the resurrection, maybe there'd be some insight for me, and maybe there's some insight for us. And that takes us to John 21. Because John 21 is significant. It's the last chapter written in the last gospel about the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's after the resurrection. So now we can ask the disciples the question, how has your life changed? So let me read the first four verses to you. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples are together. So that's seven for you all who are math challenged, me included. All right, seven of the remaining 11 disciples. Now remember, there was 12, but Judas has hung himself at this point, so now there's only 11. Seven of them are gathered together in this scene. Look at verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, well, we'll go with you. They went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, gentlemen, does this sound like a man event to you? All right. Peter gets a wild hair and goes, I'm going fishing. No thought goes into it. The other guys grunted at him and go, yeah, we're going with you, right? So they go out and they get into the boat, right? Just as day was breaking, 
Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now the stage is set now for Jesus to teach one final lesson to seven of the remaining disciples. What's the final lesson he wants to teach them? I believe he was trying to teach me, and I think he's trying to teach us tonight. The lesson is this. He needs to get them and me and us to stop living like someday saints and start living more like borrowed time believers. Now, what's the difference between a someday saint and a borrowed time believer? Well, a someday saint is that museum piece of a Christian who's always going to get around to it someday. Whatever it is that God wants them to do with their lives, they're going to do it. They're just not going to do it today, you see. They're, they keep God at arm's length. They're the king and queen of the procrastinators. They kick the can down the road. And gentlemen, I'm looking at a lot of guys that are at my point in life or, or beyond, and you guys are successful. You've been wildly successful in a lot of things. Now at this point in your life, you're moving into significance. You want to leave this place a better place for the cause of Christ. Many of you guys have learned the difference between the someday saint mentality and the borrowed time believer sense of urgency. Because the borrowed time believer lives every day with a sense of urgency and purpose and passion. They know that every day on this earth, every breath in their lungs is a precious gift from God. And if you've ever had a diagnosis of cancer, you've ever been in a life-threatening illness or injury, you understand exactly what I'm talking about right now because you know for a fact that you're living on borrowed time. In fact, you can mark it on the calendar. And you're trying to get the most out of every day, and not the most for you, hopefully, but the most for the bigger picture, the cause of Christ, the kingdom of God. You want to leave this earth a better place than when you first arrived. So how is he going to get them and me and us to move from this someday saint mentality to this borrowed time believer sense of urgency? Well, he's going to ask us three questions. And the first is this. What are you doing here? Isn't that a great question? What are you doing here? Now, don't think I'm being loose with the text here. Jesus doesn't utter a word in the first four verses. He simply shows up on the shore. That's all he does. Can you tell I'm from New Jersey? He shows up on the shore, on the beach that day. And uh, he shows up on the beach, and they don't even know it's him. Now, how can you imply a question without uttering any words? Uh, my mom, before she passed away, she shared with me a story about when she was a little girl. And this is way back in the day, but for 10 cents for a dime, on Saturday afternoon, you could go watch three features at the movie theater. And she said, I had a dime burning a hole in my pocket, and so did my little girlfriend. She said, the only thing standing between me and success was my dad, your grandpa. And so she said, I went to my dad that morning. I said, Daddy, I've got 10 cents, and so does my girlfriend. We would like to go to the movies this afternoon. May we please go to the movies? He said, sweetheart, you may not go to the movies. Now, you understand my mom. My mom was a very determined lady. I'm sure she was a pretty determined little girl. And you know what's going to happen next, right? Early that afternoon, she just disappears. And uh, she's at the movie theater, and she said it was about halfway through the first feature. I was really enjoying the movie when I noticed a pair of man's shoes just standing there next to me in the aisle. And she said, I didn't even need to look up. She said, I recognized it to be my dad's one and only pair of shoes. And she said, so I took a big gulp, and I quietly slipped up my hand, and my dad grabbed my hand, and he walked me all the way home a full 20 minutes. He didn't utter a word. She said, I wanted him to yell at me or scold me or something. He didn't utter a word. Why didn't he say anything? He didn't need to. You see, simply by showing up, he communicated a much louder message. And the message to my mother that day was this. Sweetheart, you don't belong here. See, that's the message that Jesus is communicating to the disciples at this moment. Now, I'm sure he didn't call these guys sweetheart, but you get the idea, right? You know, gentlemen, you don't belong here. I've uniquely 
qualified you to transform the world for the cause of Jesus Christ. When he first called these men, he called them to become what? Fishers of men. Seven of the men on the planet that are uniquely qualified to be fishers of men are now back in the boat fishing for what? Fish. Nothing wrong with fishing for fish, gentlemen. Not a good use of their time at this moment. And Jesus shows up, and by showing up, he implies the question, what are you doing here? And he's not talking about in the boat at the moment. So I'm going to ask you that question. What are you doing here? And I'm not talking about in this room. I know why you're here. Good fellowship, great time to get away. This is absolutely necessary. What are you doing here on this earth? Are you going to leave this planet a better place for the cause of Christ than when you first arrived? Or is this all about the accumulation of stuff, which, by the way, you can't take with you? And you know it. When you stand before the Lord and you cast crowns upon him, those are things that you have earned over time by your faithful obedience to Jesus Christ, living like a borrowed time believer with a sense of urgency and purpose and passion. Too many of us are living like someday saints. We're going to get around to it someday. You don't know how many days you have on this earth. What are you doing here? Now, the second question comes on the heels of the first. Jesus now speaks for the first time in verse 5, and Jesus said to them, and I love this, he's just on the beach, he goes, do you, do you have any fish? He yells out to the boat. Do you ever wonder why God ever asks a question? All right, let that sink in for a minute. All right, the God of the universe is asking the question. It's not because he doesn't know the answer, right? It's always for our benefit. It's always a rhetorical question coming from him. He already knows there's no fish out in that boat. And you also know what it's like when you're cold and tired and cranky and hungry and maybe a little bit embarrassed and you want to cut off the conversation. Don't you give that snippy one-word answer? All right, and Mrs. Scheibner and I do it with each other all the time. And so uh, one of the guys in the boat yells this back, No! Wow. Picture the scene. Aren't you glad today that God doesn't accept no for an answer? Think about where your walk with Christ would be if he accepted no from you the first time. So I picture Jesus puts a smile on his face, and now he's going to walk these guys back down memory lane. So he says, take that net you've got in the boat and throw it out on the other side. Now, three years prior to this, when he first called Peter, back in Luke chapter 5, Peter had been out fishing all night, hadn't caught a single fish. Jesus shows up for the first time in Peter's life, says, throw the net on the other side. It doesn't make any sense what he's asking them to do, because the fish can see the net during the day. And that's why they fish at night, because the fish can't see the net. So every fisherman knows you don't throw the nets out once the sun comes up, because they can see it. They'll just swim around it. But there's something compelling about the voice of the Lord. And many times the Lord asks us to do stuff that makes absolutely no worldly sense, no earthly sense. And so he says, throw the net on the other side. So these guys, they throw the net on the other side. And you know what? There's only one guy that fishes like this, right? It's Jesus. So you know what's going to happen in John 21, the same thing that happened in Luke 5. The net begins to fill up with fish so quickly they can hardly haul it in. Now the guys in the boat get excited because now they know who it is on the shore. Peter gets excited. John gets excited. Peter gets so excited, he jumps out of the boat and he swims to shore. That's pretty excited. The other guys are rowing the boat back, you know, pulling the nets with the fish behind him. And thanks a lot, Peter. And, you know, they finally make it back up to the beach. But Peter's a good guy. So while they go to greet the Lord, Peter grabs those nets and he's pulling them up on the shore and he gets them up farther and farther and they get pretty heavy. And, but Peter's a sturdy guy, so he pulls them all the way up there and you can hear the fish flopping around. You can see the fish flopping around. You can even smell the fish in your nostrils. Right now, at this point in Peter's life, Peter is reunited with the resurrected God of the universe. I don't know about you guys, but I'm looking forward to that moment where I first see Jesus face to face, where I see the holes in his hands and I see the hole in his side and I can see the scars on his head from the thorn of crowns. I'm looking forward to that moment. Peter is in that moment right now. And in that moment, Peter stops to take time 
to count the fish. Does that strike you as odd? I wonder how many of us would do that. Excuse me, Lord, I I gotta take this. I'll be back with you in just a minute. See the world we live in? Stuff like this is the fish, right? And so Peter is distracted by the fish. Peter loves the Lord, don't get me wrong. Steve loves the Lord. But Peter loves the fish as much as he loves the Lord. And Peter is so excited about the two things coming together, he doesn't know which one to choose. And like those fish, in a day or two or three, those fish are going to begin to rot and smell and decay. And you're going to have to go out and do it all over again. It's a workaday world that we live in. We, We all live in that world, but it's temporary. And many times we get our priorities backwards, gentlemen. We pursue that which is temporary at the expense of that which is what? Eternal, you see. That's why Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first what? His kingdom and his righteousness, and all those little fish will be added onto you as well. We get caught up in pursuing all that other little stuff and hope that God will bless it, and it doesn't work that way. And so the second question is this. What are you fishing for in life, really? What are you doing here on this earth? And what are you fishing for in this life, really? Is it love, acceptance, peace and quiet, leave me alone, uh, wealth? uh, What is it? What is it you're fishing for in this life, really? And if you don't know the answer right off the top, consult your calendar and your checkbook. What you spend your time and your money on is what you're really fishing for. They already know the answer, your calendar and your checkbook. So turn the page with me because I love verse 12. Uh, Peter counts the fish in verse 11, and verse 12 is what I call man breakfast. So Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. But none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they all knew it was the Lord. Now this is, uh, there's no ladies here. I can absolutely crack up the ladies when we talk about this, but I tell them, look, ladies, when, when men go out and have breakfast together, this might shock you, but there's no talking required. We could have, is, am I right about that? Now, trash talk, maybe, but that's a different category altogether. But these guys are having man breakfast. They're sitting there grunting at each other like a bunch of cavemen early in the morning, you know, and, uh, and, you know, pass the salts about as deep as the conversation gets. But it's much more than that. In fact, to their credit, nobody's going to be the first fool to open his mouth. This is one of those rut-row moments where they know they've been caught doing something they shouldn't be doing. They've got everything they need after the resurrection, and these guys go right back out in the boat on a whim. And Jesus is just serving fish and bread. He's just having a good time, right? And he's delivering these powerful messages. Do you ever wonder when Peter got it? You know, we, we bash Peter a lot. And we identify with Peter a lot, don't we? Because we're all thick like Peter. And There's all these episodes where Peter just doesn't get it. And then there's another episode where Peter just doesn't get it. And here's another one where it doesn't seem like Peter is quite getting it. Next time we see Peter in the scriptures, by the way, he's the head of the church and he's leading thousands to faith in Christ. So somewhere between this episode and when we see Peter next, he gets it. Here's my conjecture. I think he gets it in verse 13. Verse 13 is what I call a flyover verse. If you don't stop and linger at verse 13, you're going to miss the significance. Take a look. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. You okay, Steve? I'm lost. We already know what's on the menu. What's the big deal about verse 13? He's just telling us again what's on the menu. Well, we do know what's on the menu. Bread and fish, bread and fish. We've been told that now three times. But this one's different. It's because of the action that goes with it. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these seven men just for a minute. Last time, where were you the last time Jesus took a piece of bread and broke it and handed it to you? Yeah, it was about a week ago for you. So suppose that was a major life event. Last time Jesus took a piece of bread and broke it to you, you were in the 
upper room. We know it now as the Last Supper. Last time he took a piece of bread and broke it and handed it to you, what did he say? He said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this as often as you gather together in remembrance of me. Nothing in there about going fishing for fish. Everything in there about going fishing for men. Everything in there about transforming the world for the cause of Jesus Christ, like a borrowed time believer with that sense of urgency and passion. After the resurrection, they had everything they needed to know. And these guys go right back out in the boat. And without a word, Jesus delivers the most brilliant message yet. He simply takes a piece of bread and looks him in the eye and hands it to him. And it, had it been me, I would have cried like a little baby. This is, I call this the first communion service. I, it, no, no pomp and circumstance. Jesus just takes a piece of bread and hands it to him. These guys got it in verse 13. They knew exactly what he was communicating to them at that moment. But to drive the point home now in verse 15, 16, and 17, Jesus turns his attention to Peter. Peter was the natural leader of the group. The other guys would follow. He turns his attention to Peter, and he asks him that now famous question. Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me more than these? You're familiar with that question, right? You hear it preached all the time. In fact, he asked him that question three times. Now, I don't want to spend time to go into all the Greek and all that, but they're, they're talking at cross purposes with each other. Jesus is asking for an agape type of love, a higher love. Peter comes back with phileo, a lower type of love. And the point is this. He asked him that question three times, and the real question is this. What do you love more than Jesus? Because the these that he's talking about could be any number of things. It could be the other men that are there. It could be the distractions of life. Peter's pretty distracted. Or it could be our 153 large fish flopping around in our nets during our silent man breakfast. It could be that. It could be any of those things. Now, here's my vote. And, and if you read uh, commentaries and, and so forth, you're going to get a lot of different opinions on, on what it is. Uh, and that's great. Read all of that stuff. My vote is this. I think it's the fish for what it's worth. I think Jesus takes Peter by the shoulder, walks him over by the nets and says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Because Peter's excited about those fish. He took time to count those fish. And the third time Jesus asked him that question, it says Peter was wounded. But sometimes God's got to wound us to get our attention, right? What do you love more than Jesus? And guys, I guarantee this week, this past week, through your actions, your words, your deeds, your choices, there was something that you loved more than Jesus. Am I right about that? Slip up your hand if there was something you loved more than Jesus this week. There's not a week that goes by that there's not something I love more than Jesus. And usually it's named Steve. Just being honest with you. I love me a lot. The Lord brought all three of those questions into my life on September 11, 2001. How did he do that? By showing me my own mortality. At the time, I was pastoring a church up in Maine. I was flying for American Airlines. I had a growing family. I would have told you I was right dead center in, in the middle of God's will, and I was. But at the same time, I was beginning to settle in like a someday saint. I was telling my church up in Maine, folks, you're going to bury me behind the church someday. This is my life's work. This is it. This is what I'm doing. You know, and I was thinking in the back of my mind, even God couldn't take me away from this. He brought me here to be a pastor, and the Lord had something much bigger for me to do. But I didn't know it at the time. He saw me settling in as that someday saint, and he needed me to live with that sense of urgency and purpose and passion. So he showed me my own mortality. He showed me how fleeting life can be. And I'm here this evening to tell you I know what it's like to have somebody die in my place. Not once, but twice. And once was enough. You see, Tom, the, the pilot who bumped me off that flight, he'd be the first guy to tell you that he did not die for my sins. Now, how can I say that with confidence? 
Here's a silver lining on this little dark story. Tom had a solid testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. When Tom was about 17 years old, about the same time I trusted Christ, Tom gave his heart to the Lord, and on September 11, 2001, Tom went straight from that bloody cockpit straight into the arms of the Lord. John Oganowski, the captain, I wish I could tell you, but I knew John, and I don't think he was saved. But Tom was. He went in the arms of the Lord. But the other who died in my place, the other who died in Tom's place, the other who died in your place was far more significant. See, the Lord Jesus Christ hung and bled and suffered on a cross to pay a price that he and he alone was uniquely qualified to pay. Tom and I could have swapped out for each other on any given day. We were both qualified to sit in the same seat. I'm still qualified to sit in that seat, but only one has ever been qualified to go to the cross of Calvary, and he did it. And why did he do it? Why did he go to the cross for a wretched sinner like you and a wretched sinner like me? Why would he do that? Two reasons, really. Out of faithful obedience to God the Father. That's how much he loves the Father. And out of a deep and abiding love for you and me, the object of his passion. That's how much he loves you. How can you keep that type of love at arm's length? You see, that type of love requires, even demands a response on our part, doesn't it? You see, in, in one part in the film, I said it, it demands, it, it, there's an obligation that comes with this. You see, gentlemen, the other thing we have in common is this. We're all living on borrowed time. Whether you're old or young, you're living on borrowed time. You don't know what's going to happen on the slopes tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen in the car or the plane ride. You don't know when your day is going to be. You just know you're going to have one someday. And you're going to, you better be prepared to go meet your maker. You're going to stand before the Lord someday. And is he going to say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or is it going to be, Steve, I need you to sit down for a minute. I need to talk with you. I'm absolutely passionate about hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant. How about you? So how would you answer those three questions, gentlemen? What are you doing here? What are you fishing for in life, really? And what do you love more than Jesus? And by the way, there's nothing on this planet that Jesus loves more than you. He's already proven that on the cross of Calvary. All right, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege it is to be able to, to tell my God story. And Lord, you know that I was um, very reluctant um, to tell it for a number of years. I, didn't, I don't like talking about myself, and I didn't think it was very interesting. And uh, Lord, you literally shoved me out the door with this film. And uh, Father, thank you um, for the hundreds I've seen come to Christ and the hundreds I've heard of that have come to Christ. And, and Lord, uh, we all have a, a God story to tell here this evening. And Lord, uh, you're writing that story now. Uh, chapter by chapter, line by line. And uh, Father, I wonder where that story is going to end up tomorrow or the day after. Uh, but Lord, for each one of us, we've got to do business with you. And uh, so Father, I'm just going to do a simple invitation at this point. Uh, I'm going to just pray for these guys. And, uh, and Lord, I, I know what the statistics are. I, I pastored. I know. I read all the stuff. I dealt with it firsthand in the church. There's a half a dozen guys in this room, Lord, that are hooked on porn. And, um, and they keep telling themselves that the last time was the last time. But they need to seek help. They need to reach out. Maybe they need to reach out to another man, another godly man in this room. They need to, to reach out to their pastor and say, look, I need, I need help. I, I can't do it on my own. Lord, some of our marriages are failing. Some of our relationships with our children are so strained we can hardly stand it. Uh, Lord, we are men and we are weak and we, uh, we can't do it on our own. Yet, Lord, we try to sometimes and that's vain, vanity and pride. 
So, Father, I pray for my fellow men here in this room that you would help me and all of us, uh, Lord, to deal with you and to live with that borrowed time believer sense of urgency at the same time understanding that we need to come and deal and do business with you first on a ground level basis where you deal with us in our hearts so that we've got something to offer somebody else, not an empty cup, but out of the overflow of a full spiritual cup. So, Father, I pray that you'd fill these spiritual cups here this evening. And we pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Randy, I'm going to hand it back to you. Thank you, sir, for the opportunity.